0: How do we respond when we either feel critiqued or opposed? How do we feel especially when we are deliberately misrepresented or slandered? You may have noticed in the reading we had yesterday, we ended on that. There was the very last phrase that we didn't really delve into. Was after it, you know, to give an answer to for the reason for the hope that you have, and do this with gentleness and respect. You know, keeping a clear conscience so that those who slander your name in Christ may be ashamed. Now, it's a very, very interesting thing, because it anticipates that if we're going to lead a Christian life, the one thing we can guarantee is that we will come across false accusation, misrepresentation, and people coming against us. And it's a very difficult thing to deal with if it's happened to you. Now, sometimes they can be minor things. Um, yesterday, I shared with you two parts of my life. One, my encounter with a hairdresser; the other one a little bit about my testimony. And I can remember being amazed a couple of years ago when someone set forward an email saying, Michael, you need to read this, and saw that someone had set off some kind of viral email with both of those stories, um, either claiming them to be their own in one case, or in the second place, someone saying, if you pass this on to someone, you'll be blessed, and if you don't, you'll be cursed for the next two years, and thinking, wow. And uh, it irks a little bit. The testimony one irked a bit more, because I felt like, look, get your own testimony. Um, (laughs) That's how I came to meet the Lord. You must have some kind of story yourself all the way up to things which are far more serious than that, and sometimes carry huge consequence. Now, the trouble is is that we currently live in a culture, in a global culture, actually. It's not just simply true here in the UK. I find this is true just as much in China, and in New Zealand, and in the Middle East, and right across Africa and America, which is quite unusual. It's very unusual to find such truly global cultural phenomena. But we're living in a global culture right now where the three most powerful words in the English language are I am Offended. Um, If you want to send your HR department into a spin, uh, I suggest you send them an email with those three words in the subject line and just see the nature and the scale of the response that you will get. Now, what on earth is going on? How do we understand it? Now, I first got interested in this several years ago. Um, Some of you may remember this chain of events when a lady called Jermaine Greer. very well-known academic living now in this country, um, very famous for her uh, feminist views and writings, made comments about transgender people. I won't repeat exactly what she said. She used various four-letter words that, as a Christian preacher, I feel I shouldn't use, but you're all Christians, so you'll have to forgive me even if I did. And what she essentially said was, well, if you take a man and you remove various parts, you don't have a woman, you have a man minus various parts, except it was slightly cruder than that. And it was actually quite offensively framed in terms of the language that she used. Now, because of this, the National Union of Students had a debate and no platform Jermaine Graham prevented her from speaking, I think, if I remember correctly, at the University of Cardiff, saying she shouldn't be allowed to speak. Now, this alarmed someone by the name of Peter Tatchell. Some of you will be familiar with Peter Tatchell as one of this country's foremost sort of gay rights activists now over many, many decades. And Peter Tatchell held a press conference with the BBC in which he said he felt it was wrong for the non-National Union of Students to no platform Jermaine Greer. They should allow her to speak and then go along and disagree with her and ask her difficult questions. Now for saying this, Peter Tatchell was no platform by the National Union of Students. (laughs) Amongst other things, amongst accusations that he was homophobic. Which raises the question, how is it possible for one of Britain's leading gay rights activists to be denounced in this way? I have to say, actually, my heart went out to him thinking crumbs. If you've campaigned for this for decades and now people have turned on you and labelled you with this, that must really hurt. Now, at this point, another guy you may have heard of by the name of Richard Dawkins. He held a press conference with the BBC and also using various short letter words that had to be bleeped out made it known what he thought of the intellectual capacity of a group of students at university who could look at Peter Tatchell's life and conclude that he hated gay people. And then went on to suggest that people who had such a low intellectual capacity shouldn't have been allowed into university in the first place. (laughs) At this point, the National Union of Students set up a debate in order to debate the issue of whether Richard Dawkins should be no-platformed and prevented (laughs) from speaking at British universities. At this point, a guy called Brian Cox, some of you may have seen him on TV, uh, also a well-known atheist, scientist, he held a press conference with the BBC in which he said, look, you can't no-platform Richard Dawkins and stop him speaking at British universities. I mean, the guy is a fairly famous academic, you know, and he should really be allowed to talk. What on earth is going on? How do we understand what is happening here? As someone has said very astutely, the only better feeling in the world right now than being right is feeling wronged. We live in a culture which delights in taking offense and then is very happy to use that offense to justify any form of extreme action against the enemy in order to take them out, even if it means making things up and lying. Now, the reason I want to be here in 1 Corinthians is that what we see going on here in in Corinth is fascinating with Paul. And we're going to come and look at it in a minute. But before I do, I just want to share with you a basic outline That sociologists for many years have used to try to analyze culture or parts of culture And then we're going to look back into this passage of scripture and see what it actually has to say about it But for many many years decades even longer than that actually We've way culture has been analyzed is very often what's called an honor dignity Sort of paradigm so we look at what are called honor cultures in an honor culture What is esteemed most in leadership is that people conduct themselves with honor. What we look for in the life of our leaders, what we look for in the life of people we esteem, people who have status amongst us, are people who have honor. They conduct themselves with honor. Now, I'm not gonna go into a huge amount of detail here, except to say that when you're attacked in an honor culture, when someone comes against you and accuses you, your primary concern is that you must defend your honor. You must act honorably and you must defend your honor. You can't go crying off to daddy to sort your problems. That's not honorable. You can't go around complaining about how miserable you feel. That's not particularly honourable. It is up to you to find a way now to deal with the situation before you and you respond with honour. And if you do it well, then you actually grow in esteem and estimation of others, even when you come under attack. Now we would contrast those with dignity-based cultures. Now in a dignity-based culture, unlike an honour-based culture, you don't need to earn your respect so much as you expect to have it simply because of who you are. And the key thing is that you conduct yourself with dignity. Now, in a dignity-based culture, if someone attacks me publicly, I may decide not to publicly defend my honor at all. I may decide to quietly take the whole thing aside into a room, sit down with someone, deal with the issue there, come out of the room and say to everyone, OK, we've dealt with it now, everything's fine between us, we're moving on. And that would be seen as a dignified response. And I acted with dignity, and I conducted myself with dignity. And because of that, I would be esteemed, and maybe valued as a leader. People would give me status. Perhaps look up to me and think, well, that's something to be emulated and followed. Now, the things that both of these have in common is that not only do, in both of these, you don't go crying off to daddy for help, because that's not a dignified response either. You also do not exaggerate the pain that you're in, nor do you publicly display it, because it's neither dignified nor honourable. But we are increasingly living in now what has been seen as a global victimhood culture. Now, in a victimhood culture, we have status... We have value because we are victims. That's what gives us status. Now I know this may sound strange, but let me try to illustrate it for you from the movies. Uh, have any of you seen in this room the original Superman movie? Christopher Reeves, 1980, put up your hand high. Hey, look, that's, that's a fair number of you. Well, let me ask you, what was the original Superman's weakness? Apart from kryptonite, what weaknesses did he have? And the answer is zero. Physically, perfect, morally, perfect. Rationally, perfect, sensitive, humble, kind, strong. Reminds me of me in so many ways. <laughs> he was perfect. Have any of you seen the remake of Superman, Man of Steel, that came out a few years ago? Put up your hand, don't be ashamed. Shame on you for wasting your time. You, you shouldn't be watching that rubbish. I, I watch films like this because I have to do a lot of cultural research and analysis. Now... How does the remake of Superman start? Superman is in a boat, in the middle of an ocean, in the middle of a storm, feeling cosmically abandoned, cosmically separated, cosmically misunderstood, separated from his parents, separated not just simply from his home planet, but from his home planet, misunderstood, misrepresented, missed thing, cannot form relationship. Everyone is looking to him for things that he cannot possibly do. For Superman to be a hero today, he must be a victim. He must have a series of historical and present grievances which define who he is and give him status. I don't know how many of you watch Marvel movies, but if you are familiar with the Marvel series, think about every single superhero in Marvel. Every single one has a victim narrative. All of them have to have a history where they've been abused, used, betrayed, stabbed in the back. Even Captain America, the most boring superhero ever invented. (laughs) in order for him to have a sequel to his first film, has to be betrayed by his country, betrayed by his friends, incapable of forming a relationship, abandoned by those who he loves, because he cannot have status unless he has a set of historical and present grievances which define him and give him status. We are currently locked in a culture of competitive victimhood, where we're all trying to outdo each other with the amount of grievance and pain we've been through in order to have status in front of our peers. Now this is incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous for all kinds of reason. In a victim culture, the narrative quickly becomes, everything I do is motivated by love. But if you dare disagree with me, the only explanation of that is hatred. So as soon as you say, well, I disagree, the only explanation is hatred. How can Peter Tatchell be accused of being homophobic? Answer, the student who no platform, Jermaine Greer, was gay, Peter Tatchell disagrees with me. He disagrees with me because I'm gay, therefore he must be a secret homophobe. And that was all the justification that was needed to carry the motion before the NUS. It is an incredibly dangerous place to be. What we see, as one commentator has said, is victimhood causes a downward spiral of competitive victimhood. We're locked into a vortex of grievance. Now, if you're struggling to understand world politics right now, just run it through this paradigm. What are political leaders around the world right now doing, saying, how do they conduct themselves? In a global climate as this, if you want to run for office, what you do is you calculate the number of victim groups in society. If you want to join the victim group, you have to advocate their complaint more militantly and more vociferously than them. If you do that, you'll get co-opted into their group, up until the point you disagree with them, and then you'll be thrown out for hating them. So all you do is you do the maths, you calculate the number of victim groups, you calculate the number of likely voters in each group, and you advocate their complaint in a more militant and more vociferous way than they do themselves. And then they will give you their vote. Which is why now, if we were to ask ourselves the question, how many states people are in the world right now? It's very hard to answer. Three, four decades ago, if I were to say to you, who are the statesmen and women that you respect around the world, all of us could have listed maybe four or five people who seemed to rise above the tyranny of the immediate. They conducted themselves on a bigger and better platform. They didn't seem to get sucked into the dirt of everyday everything else. And they could speak with real authority into difficult situations. But that's because we valued honor and dignity. Where are the statesmen and women today? Where are the people who cut across political lines, party lines, racial lines, class lines, you name it, and are somehow able to command a stronger and bigger voice? Where are they? And the answer is, it's exceptionally difficult. Now, the thing about victimhood is if what I read on the BBC news app is accurate, and obviously being the BBC, it must be accurate, is, <clears throat> I was amazed to see them referring to a study a couple of months ago saying that actually this mentality can actually be psychologically good for you, in the sense that if someone... Have you ever been through this kind of scenario? Someone does something bad to you, and you respond respond angrily. Has that ever happened to you? I'm sure. Maybe it's just me and my half Middle Eastern blood. And the next morning you wake up and you hate yourself, because you're thinking, I now have to apologise. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have responded that way. And the thing that makes it hard is what they did was wrong. And now you think, I'm going to have to go and say I'm sorry for... Speaking to you that way, and they're going to interpret that as, well, I knew I was right, but they were actually wrong, so it seems to make it even worse. Is it just me, or have have any of you been caught in this thing? And you feel bad about it. But once you adopt a victim mentality, actually... When someone says something to you and you respond badly to them, in the next day when you wake up, you don't feel bad about it at all. You actually feel good about yourself. As a matter of fact, they deserved every bad thing you said to them, and you're happy to make up some other things about them which aren't even true because they deserve everything that you give them. They are so completely wrong. They are so totally deserving of everything you give them that in your self-righteous anger, you're prepared to say anything, do anything, accuse them of anything, and even make things up. I can remember a couple of years ago when speaking about this subject matter um, two years ago in Australia, the former Deputy Prime Minister was um, hosting meetings for me, and he came up and he basically said, look, can you change your message so you speak on this in every single city we go to? So that's all we spoke about for the next little while. And he said, Michael, you know, there was something amazing that happened just before you came here. I don't know if you heard about it. I hadn't heard the story. Someone had forged two letters from two different banks, an MP of a political party, in order to cause the share price of a particular company to crash. The reason they wanted to crash the share price of the company was that they felt that this particular company didn't have a strong enough environmental policy. It wasn't sufficiently green. So they released these letters from these two banks saying they were gonna withdraw all funding to the company and sure enough, the share price collapsed. While well, the next day, of course, the heads of these banks were trying to figure out who sent these letters. And then very quickly discovered the letters had been forged. Then they discovered that this particular MP had a personal bank account with each of these two banks. And what he'd done is he'd copied the letterhead and then forged a letter underneath and released it to the press. Now what would happen when the head of that party had a national press conference? What would have happened 20 years ago? Well, here's what they would have said. They would have said something like this. We're very, very sorry that our MP lied and forged these letters. Please don't let that detract you from the excellent work we're doing and what we stand for. We're going to do this better and well because what we're fighting for is so important. Here's what they actually said in their press conference. The head of the political party said, we are fully justified in forging these letters because we are so right in what we're doing and we are ultimately justified in all of our action that we're prepared to even say more extreme lies and cause even more harm like this in order to achieve our goal, which is ultimately right. And a week later, when an opinion poll was conducted, their popularity went up, not down. We are now living in a very, very different mindset. Now, what on earth has all of this got to do with Paul and Corinth? Well, we're going to spend a, quite a bit of time expositing 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. I don't know if you've ever looked at the verse, verse in detail. And then we're actually going to jump into the second half where the solution is. So here's how Paul starts his letter to the Corinthians. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, it's an unusual address. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians is unusual in a several way. For a start, Paul keeps using the phrase, Our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, multiple times in that reading. You may have noticed it. So all the way through, somehow he's making this incredibly strong, and he doesn't normally phrase it quite like that. It's slightly unusual for him. But what's even more unusual is when he writes to the Corinthian church and he says, You know, I'm Paul, I'm called to be an apostle by Jesus Christ, and so on. That's quite common. that make sense? You know? And then he says, And Sosthenes. So here's the question Have you ever read this and thought, Who on earth is Sosthenes? And how come he gets mentioned right at the very beginning of the book? Well, when Paul went to Corinth, he went and preached there. And after he preached in Corinth, he then went to someone's house. And in the house came a guy called Crispus, the leader of the Jewish synagogue. And Crispus heard Paul and gave his life to the Lord. And he became a Christian. Now, following his conversion, they had to appoint a new leader of the synagogue in Corinth. So they appointed a guy called Sosthenes. Now Sosthenes then came under pressure from the community there to bring a court case against the apostle Paul to get him into trouble. So they misrepresented him and accused him of breaking the law. And they brought a court case before a guy called Gallio. Gallio was one of the most powerful judges in the ancient world. He held one of the equivalent of like two Supreme Court seats in the ancient Roman Empire. And he was in it. And not only that, his brother was a a Roman senator by the name of Seneca, who was a tutor to the Roman Emperor Nero. So this guy not only had incredible power politically and also legally, he is actually connected, has a direct line to the emperor himself. So in now using the force of law to try to remove Paul's platform and freedom to preach the gospel, they realize that if they're successful in this, this could have a huge consequence and a huge win for stopping the spread of the Christian gospel. Not that any of you, I'm sure, could relate to a culture where people would seek to use law to try to shut Christians up. As hard as it is to imagine that someone may do that, they were doing this to Paul. Now, the court, the case went to Gallio, and Gallio threw the case out, and he said, I'm not even going to hear it. And at this point, the Jewish people turned on Sosthenes, they beat him to a pulp, and they left him on the steps. Now, many of you are looking at me saying, Michael, this is an amazing exposition. How do you get that from 1 Corinthians verse 1? (laughs) And the answer is I don't. It's in Acts chapter 18. Everything I just told you is related in Acts chapter 18. If you read (laughs) Acts 18, and I would recommend reading the Bible, it is a good book, you will read that entire story there. Paul went to Corinth. Crispus goes into Titius Justice's house, he gets converted, they appoint Sosthenes, Sosthenes is lobbied. he brings the case before Gallio. Now all of a sudden Gallio throws the course out, and then we read then at the end that the crowd then turned on Sosthenes in chapter 17, the synagogue leader and beat him in front of the proconsul and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Now the question is, what on earth happened next? After the crowd turned on Sosthenes, beat him to a pulp, and left him there, what happened next? Is it too hard to imagine that the Apostle Paul, having been wrongly accused, framed, misrepresented, and now threatened with the full force of the Roman Empire, instead of rejoicing in his victory, walks over to Sosthenes, extends the hand of fellowship, picks him up, takes him home, and leads him to the Lord. Well, I think that's precisely what happened. It's not just the fact that Crispus was mentioned in our reading, as you got towards the end of that section that we had just now. But it's also because of the issue that Paul wants to address to them. You see, the church in Corinth is divided. We have it in... um, Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, Baragalor, it's a a strong form of appeal. I'm begging you, he says, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in the way that you say, um, in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, and you be perfectly united. My brothers and sisters, Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. Now, the challenge with any English translation is that English language is by nature, when it's used well, and especially in the British culture, understated. We like understatement in the UK. Um, You know, I'm in a spot of bother, you know, famously. My world is about to collapse and I think the world could end, you know, but that's what we say. And that is also reflected in often how we translate. The word translated quarrel here is derived from the name for the goddess of war. He literally writes to them and he says, it has been reported to me that the spirit of the goddess of war has been released amongst you. It is an incredibly powerful image. You are literally at each other's throats and you're tearing your throats out. And he says, I'm now appealing to you. I'm appealing to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes above everyone and everything, that you now be united and you come together. And by the way, remember Sosthenes, the guy who tried to use the power of the imperial court of Rome to shut us up and shut us down? He also sends greetings and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember him. If God could have changed his heart, Paul is reminding them in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he can change theirs. If you think this has gone so far, it is impossible to come together as one. You're forgetting both the nature of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the one who ultimately died to save us, Paul is saying. This is about Christ. We come together for his name and in his name, and this is about him. It's about our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the basis on which we are united as brothers and sisters. Paul's response in the face of slander, misrepresentation and attack isn't self-righteous glorification or even self-righteous pity. Now the Bible has so much to say about self-righteousness, we could say a lot about it. As a matter of fact, if you read through the gospels and ask yourself, when is self-righteousness being challenged? You will find that in virtually every chapter, the spirit of self-righteousness is going to be challenged by the person of Jesus Christ. I was doing my Bible reading um, a couple of uh, weeks ago. I'm on a Bible reading plan. It's a bit similar to the one that you have here. I'd recommend this to you if you don't like it. And if you're so busy because you have to commute a lot, I'm now, I now have an audio Bible on my phone. It's free on the U version. It's read by David Suchet. It's the entire Old and New Testament. Yeah, so if you want your Bible read to you by Hercule Poirot, then you know, um, just put it in your car and listen to it while you drive. Actually, listening to the scripture, rather than just reading yourself, sometimes is a very effective way. It makes you hear it slightly differently. And I was doing my quiet time a couple of weeks ago, and there's this amazing scene in Luke where the disciple, where the people accusing Jesus Christ come to the palace. And then there's this one line. I'd never particularly noticed it before. And it says, and they refused to go into the palace because it was the Sabbath, and they didn't want to defile themselves. Now, isn't that amazing? They are falsely accusing Jesus Christ and making up things about him. And we know that the, the things they've made up about him are so badly wrong that they don't, can't even agree amongst themselves. But in order to maintain their purity and self-righteousness, they bring Jesus all the way up to the palace, but they don't cross the threshold so they can say, well, we kept the law and we're pure and we're good. And in the very process of protecting their self-righteous pride, they're betraying the very Son of God. It's incredible, isn't it? which is why when we're self-righteously angry, we get into trouble so quickly and so, and so deeply. It's one of the most dangerous places to find ourselves when we feel so completely justified in and of ourselves. We're even willing to make things up about other people to get them into trouble. It's a terrible thing. And so Paul, now having appealed to them, he then goes into some depth where the solution lies. Where is the solution to this? And it comes in the part of the scripture that we haven't read. It runs from 1 Corinthians 1.17 down to 2 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Now, I'm deeply indebted to the guy who used to mentor me. Just after I became a Christian in the Middle East, I had the distinct privilege of being, I used to spend three hours, um, three hours twice a week, sitting in the study of a guy called Dr. Ken Bailey, who was a remarkable Hebrew and Greek scholar and uh, biblical scholar. And We all just used to work through the Bible together. He did the most amazing thing, incredible language. I had no interest in language before I got converted, it was interesting. I was a science guy through and through. I had no interest in learning foreign languages, I had no interest in English language, and I had no interest in poetry. And bizarrely, when I got converted, I fell in love with grammar, language, poetry, and everything else. And one of the reasons I just couldn't stop reading the Bible, I was just fascinated by it. Now, if you read any good technical commentary on 1 Corinthians, what it will tell you is that Paul is at his most eloquent writing here. This is some of Paul's most eloquent writing you'll find anywhere. Now, why is that surprising? Well, it's surprising because in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, down to 2 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says, I didn't rely on wise and eloquent speech when I came to speak to you. And he is writing to them in the most eloquent form that we, that we see. Now, let let me just try to point out a little bit of you. We'll have to skip through some of it just to compress it into the time to make it fit. In 1 Corinthians 17, we read, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He talks about his coming, the use of lofty words, the proclamation and the cross, okay? In 2 Corinthians 2.2, if you read that, Paul talks about his coming, the use of lofty words, the proclamation and the cross. Do do you notice something about those two bookends? Do, Do you see they're slightly similar? They mirror each other. Now, if we had time, you'll then see that it builds up into a climax. After his four introductory points, like A, B, C, D, which he then re- repeats in reverse order, D, C, B, A, at the bottom, he then goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 7 is the climax of what he's about to say theologically. And then he goes 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And then they all pair off all the way through. So this is incredibly beautiful poetical structure to 1 Corinthians. And the heart of it is when Paul say, talks about the fact um, and where he puts the emphasis on the cross, and he talks about Jews to mind a sign, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called. That is the center of it. In my sense, So he's leading rhetorically right into the middle. He's going to draw them all the way to the cross. Let me read it to you in Greek and just see if you can hear this. This is how it reads in Greek. He me este cru Christon este es men Ethne on. Now, did you hear it? It rhymes. Now, here's the next thing. If you know anything about Greek poetry, it is not written in this meter. There is no either normal in Koine Greek, classical Greek, uh, any Greek. It is not written in this meter. This is Hebrew poetry. Now, if you know Hebrew language, translating Hebrew into Greek, they're two very different types of language. And they work very differently. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul is now writing to them, warning them against relying on eloquence. And he breaks out into rhyming verse with a perfect translation from Hebrew into Greek in order to make his point that he's not relying on eloquence. It's really quite beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> so how on earth do we understand this? What is going on? I, the... the um, Chairman of our former chairman of my board used to be an Iranian guy. And he was once translating my boss Ravi Zacharias at a conference in London. And as he was, he said to his wife about four weeks before he was translating Ravi Zacharias, he said, you know, I've been listening to Ravi a lot recently and there's one poem he seems to like a lot. And he quotes it and it was quite a difficult poem, quite a technical poem, seven verses long in alternating rhyming stanzas. And he said to his wife, I am sure he's gonna use that poem. So for the next seven weeks, he found a way to translate into Farsi, maintaining the meter, the structure, the rhyme, and the meaning, how to translate this from English into Farsi. And sure enough, halfway through his talk, Ravi just said to the translator, look, I'm going to quote this poem. He said, okay. I said, yeah, yeah, sure, go ahead. So he said in Farsi to the congregation, look, he, he's going to quote some poetry, and then I'll summarize it for you. So Ravi gives it in English to so all the English speakers there, and then This guy, his name is Lazarus, says, look, let let me try and translate it for you. And then rattled off from memory in perfect rhyming Farsi, the most incredible translation that you could possibly imagine of this song. And of course, the congregation were amazed. They walked out the back of the church. Some of them thought they'd witnessed a miracle. (laughs) Did you see what happened? How did he remember all seven verses? And, And the people who were bilingual were going, it even had the same meter. It even had the same syllables per line. And it rhymed. Well... I'm sure that's not what he's doing here. But Paul, as he's carried along by the Spirit, writing this inspired word, is actually trying to make something very, very strong to him. Because the other interesting thing that happens is if you take this writing of Paul and you lay along it aside of the writing of a guy called Pericles, you notice something. There are about 60 to 70 points of comparison, similarity between Pericles' speech and what Paul says here. So let me just tell you a little bit about who Pericles was. Look, every culture has very famous speeches. So if I was to say to you, we will fight them on. Peace. So all of you know that, how do you know that? I only gave you five words. How on the basis of five words can you recall? You recall history, you recall significance, you recall a leader, you can even quote, finish the quotation for me. If we are in America and I were to say four score and, okay, any Americans here? And seven years ago, how did they know that? And the answer is, well, that speech was given by Abraham Lincoln. Every schoolchild memorizes it. Six-year-olds stand up in front of their parents and they recite it to their, to their things. So every schoolchild knows it. In Greece, the one speech that everybody knew by heart because they were taught it at school was Pericles' speech. Pericles was an incredible guy. He built the Parthenon in Athens. Athens. He was a military leader. And at one point, the city came under attack and he repelled the attack of the barbarians and he won. In order to celebrate this mighty victory, the rulers of the city asked everyone to write a speech to commemorate the victory. But Pericles' speech was by far and away the most powerful. Pericles' speech was so powerful, so strong, it caused the grown men to break down and weep. And because of this, every year on the anniversary of the victory, this speech was recited in public. Schoolchildren learned it, everybody knew it by heart. Now here's the interesting thing. A couple of years after the eternal victory that Pericles is won, the barbarians re-attacked Athens and destroyed it. They more or less leveled it to the ground, and every year on the anniversary of the first battle, when the Greeks won, they stood up and recited the speech. Now Aristotle, he writes about Pericles' speech, and he says, you know, it's amazing. He says, when I recite Pericles' speech, I know it's historically wrong. I know that it actually means nothing. Does that make sense? All the stuff he's celebrating, all the stuff he says, all the significance, it it means nothing. It's completely wrong. But, Aristotle says, the power of the rhetoric gives meaning to the events which otherwise wouldn't be there. He says, what caused my spirit to soar like an angel isn't the events themselves, because the events were meaningless. It's the rhetoric. The rhetoric gives meaning to these events which otherwise they wouldn't have. And Paul... Now, takes Pericles' speech, and you'll see these 67 points of comparison if you study them carefully, and he completely reverses the logic. And Paul now says to them, When I came to you, I didn't rely on my eloquence or anything else to give meaning and power to these events. The gospel isn't powerful because I'm a good preacher, he's saying. The reason why my words have power is not because my words gave power to the cross, it's because the cross gave power to my words. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if I relied on my eloquence, if I relied on me to preach this to you, I would have emptied this message of its power. Because whatever persuasion I would have given you would have only been at a human level. But I wasn't relying on myself. I was relying on God. God gave me power. My words don't give power to the message of the cross. The cross gives power to the message that I bring. And so Paul is now doing the opposite of what Pericles did. We will fall silent as Christians, especially in a world where people will misrepresent us all the time, if we think it's up to us to somehow make the gospel powerful. That if somehow our rhetoric, our preaching, our cleverness, our eloquence, our whatever it is, will give power to the gospel. That is not what gives power to the gospel. The gospel gives us power. We humble ourselves before it. But why is Paul focusing so much on this? Well, that's not just simply the main point. The other thing he's trying to say to them is, look, you think you were wronged. You think bad things have happened to you and now you're all divided against each other. You think you're justified in the quarrel and the fight that you have. Well, what about Christ? Falsely accused, betrayed, hurt, crucified, abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was the model Christ gave us? C.S. Lewis was so right when he said forgiveness is easy so long as it's the other person who has to do the forgiving. It's so much easier. It is so much harder when we have been wronged. You see, in a victim culture, you need genuine injustice. Does that make sense? You need something to go wrong. Victim culture isn't about making up wrong things that have happened to you. Victim culture is about how do we respond when we are victimized? When someone does bad things to us, how do we respond? Well, we know what Christ's response was because we heard it from the cross. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. But how do we respond? It's so easy to get self-righteously angry and offended and use that and we just simply pile division amongst division. And then when we see people getting together, we come alongside and say, well, yeah, but do you know what so-and-so did to me three years ago? And we love to repeat offenses to multiply division. But that's what it says in scripture, right, very famously. Love doesn't cover sin and what you need to do is repeat the offense multiple times to cause as much pain and hurt as possible to everybody else. Actually, that must be one of those newfangled translations because I'm pretty sure the original one says something quite different. It is so difficult. It's so difficult. Paul is challenging us here. He's asking, how will we respond when we live in a culture such as this? The cycle has to be broken. We have to find a way to respond differently to the way the world is responding around us. Historically, victimhood cultures like ours normally either lead to civil war or to intercountry war. So the thing that's most terrifying for me as I look at the world right now is we are literally on the brink of war, not because necessarily of escalation of arms, although that's obviously going to multiply the rate of killing. But when you feel this angry and this justified against doing terrible things to other people, you will stop at nothing to do it, even if you destroy yourself in the process. We have to find a way to break through. Now, when we hear something like this, there are two possible responses to it. One is we can feel overwhelmed and think, well, it's, it's impossible, what can I do? I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. The second one, though, which I just leave you for your immediate concern, is with all of the pain, the misrepresentation, with all of the hurt, the difficulty, the challenge, how are you responding right now? What is your response in a world like this? Well, let me just tell you one story because the first point is really important. When we look at any situation that's overwhelming and we think, what can I do? I'm just one person. It, it, it's a very hard to answer that question well. Does that make sense? I mean, what can you do? I mean, I'm just one person. I have a very good friend. I'd, I'd love for you to hear from him sometime called John Bechtel. He's in his 70s now. He, his family was one of the last family, foreign families, to be forcibly expelled from China under the um, way back when in the 50s, 60s, when you had the rise of Mao and all of that kind of stuff. And his family ended up in Hong Kong. Now, um, while they were in Hong Kong, uh, his children, um, I say now into their 70s, who speak fluent Cantonese because of being raised in Hong Kong and also, uh, sorry, fluent uh, uh, and not bad at Mandarin and various other dialects too. They had it laid on their heart that they needed to reach out to all the kids who were hurting around them, but they didn't know how to do it. So John had this incredible plan where he thought we need to build a camp. And what we'll do is in this camp is that we'll run summer programs a week long and we'll put the kids in it and we'll get them doing stuff and we'll, 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 we'll share the gospel with them. Nothing radical in that, except buying property in Hong Kong was just very difficult and expensive. He found two pieces of land which would being perfect for the camp and they both fell through. But his big break came when Billy Graham visited Hong Kong. And a guy called Walter Maloon met John Bechtel and they went on the tour and John Bechtel shared his vision And showed him this abandoned school, well not abandoned, this school that was being very badly run, but had all the facilities you needed, and it would be perfect to run these camps. And he said, "I think we can buy it for about four hundred thousand dollars, which was a lot of money forty years ago." Walter Malone said, "John, this is an amazing vision. We'll put our weight behind it. I'm going to go back to America, and I'll send you all the money that you need to buy the camp." Well, this seemed like a surefire slam dunk. Four months later, John gets a letter. Inside the first letter, there's a second letter. The first letter has a note, and it said, "Dear John." Fundraising didn't go as well as planned. I've only received one donation. I enclose it with this letter So he now takes out the second letter. It's addressed to mr. John Bechtel He opens it and the letter says dear mr. Bechtel. I heard about your plan to build this camp. I Am sending you my pocket money that I get given to buy ice cream and I've been saving up Please use it to buy the camp lots of love Belinda Holmes and inside was a one dollar bill Now John felt like putting it in the bin But his wife challenged him and said, Belinda has asked you to use this money to go and buy the camp, this school, so why don't you go? So he went to the caretaker who was looking after the building and said, I want to make an offer to buy this building. (laughs) And the guy said, what is it? And he handed it over and the guy burst out laughing and said, no way. And John said, you are legally obliged under law to pass on every offer made for the purchase of property. And if you don't, I will report you to the authorities. The letter was passed on. The board read this letter, prayed over it because they were believers and they felt that actually in the end it was the right thing to do and they sold that site for $1. <laughs> now, the reason why I wish John Bechtel were here is if you he were here at this point, he would put up a slide on the screen behind me showing you the largest stadium in Hong Kong with 80,000 people in it. And those 80,000 people were the kids who had come, come to know Christ in the 40 years that camp has been running. Many years later, John was speaking in a church and he told this story. And at the end of his story, a lady came up to him in her late 30s and said, Mr. Bechtel, my name is Belinda Holmes, and I was the 12-year-old girl who sent you my ice cream money. John asked them to close the doors of the church. They were somewhere in North America, and asked everyone, get everyone back inside who they could re-get into the congregation. So he got the congregation back together and now introduced them to the lady he'd been talking to them about during his sermon. He suggested they take up a collection so she could go and see what her one dollar had done. Well, apparently they raised enough money to send her, her family, and return half of the British army back to Hong Kong. (laughs) (laughs) One dollar in the hands of God can do the most amazing things. So often in countries like ours, we think, well, what, what I can give is so small. My time, my money, it's just so small. You know, what difference is that gonna make? And the answer is, well, in the hands of God, who knows what difference it could make? Jesus is pretty good at multiplying things. You may remember that from the Gospels. He's asking us to give what we have. We can't give what we don't have by definition. She had a dollar, so that's what she gave. We have to overcome the mentality if we want to see this nation change and this continent change. we're just too small and we bring too little to the table to make any difference how we respond every day makes a difference as we pray and seek god and put into his hands everything that we have in ours he is able to take it and do things with it that at times we may not even be able to imagine sometimes we have no idea what the effect of these things is and sometimes we won't even hear about them until on the other side of eternity but it can make every difference now why don't we pray together Dear Father, we, Lord, we come in this place, Lord, because, Lord, you know, as we even prayed on the first night and ended, Lord, of all the difficult things that we see, Lord, we also realize that you and your first disciples had to struggle with so many similar things. Lord, you know the pain and the hurt, Lord, you know the difficulties that we face. Lord, we know of all the false accusation that comes, and now how people seem to delight and revel, Father, often in saying things and misrepresenting things which aren't even necessarily true. Lord, may we not be easily offended. Lord, Lord, may we delight, Lord, when we find difficulty because of your name. And Father, will you help us to reach out with a hand of grace, Lord, even with those who may come against us. Father, will you forgive us too when we think that we're just too little and too small to do anything? Lord, we thank you that the proclamation of your gospel doesn't depend on us, but it is truly about you. So, Father, may we not rely on our strength as we preach, but on yours. And, Father, may we rely, Lord, on the truth and the power of the gospel, Lord, to lead and guide us. Father, help us to put everything that we have into your hands. And, Lord, Father, will you help us to be faithful to all that you've called us to in Christ's name. Amen.